Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. A very happy Wednesday to you. Well, it's hard to believe the war in Israel is continuing. And boy, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is resisting internal and global pressure for a ceasefire, stating that Israel will not halt its Gaza military action until its goals, which include hostage release and Hamas threat elimination, are met. Those are the two primary goals. I sent out a tweet yesterday. It was unbelievable. Prince William. By the way, these are people who generally, historically, aren't supposed to wade into politics. And they really are figureheads, if you will. So they are at a lot of ceremonies. The Prince William showed up at the BAFTAs on Sunday night, which the, is the Oscar equivalent in the UK. And they put ribbons on uniforms and they open mental health centers and they draw back curtains where a memorial to Her Majesty is uh, said to be. And that's generally what they do. And apparently the British public want that. We, however, didn't. And that's why we had a revolution. And the rest is American Revolution history. So Prince William and his wife put out a statement yesterday demanding a ceasefire. Uh, So I sent out a tweet and said, not your job. You do not have the position as a king. And this is when you have someone who brushes your teeth for you, lays your clothes out, makes your bed, and cleans your bathroom on a regular basis, things you'll never have to do as a monarch. You suddenly get the idea that you have the right to tell a sovereign nation what to do. Uh, uh, There was a lot of internal blowback, by the way, and the question was raised on whether or not Prince William actually got King Charles's approval to even send out that statement. But 
should the Lord tarry and William ascend the throne, does that give us a clue exactly what kind of a monarchy he'll have, where it's no longer pomp and circumstance and ermine robes and investitures, etc., and expensive dinners, that now he's going to tell other nations what to do? My, won't that be an interesting thing or two? Well, let's take a look at Israel, not through the eyes of Prince William, but through the eyes of Julie Stahl working at CBN News. Here's an update. Netanyahu says Israel is under pressure from inside the country and abroad to stop the war before achieving its goals, including the release of the hostages. We really want to achieve another release, and we're also willing to go a long way. But we're not ready to pay any price, certainly not to pay the illusory prices that Hamas demands from us, which would mean defeat for the state of Israel. There is no pressure, no pressure that can change that. At the U.N., the U.S. defended its veto of a Security Council resolution Tuesday because it demanded an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, putting talks for a hostage release in jeopardy. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said an American emissary is in the region working to reach an agreement. And a vote for this resolution today could very well put those negotiations at risk. Meanwhile, a relative of the youngest hostage and his family reacted to security cam footage released by the IDF showing her sister-in-law and two little boys taken through the streets of Khan Yunis on October 7th. When we saw these videos, it really... Uh tore our hearts out. It was really difficult to witness Shiri, uh, Ariel and Kfir, in the situation again after being ripped away from their home in Oz into this hell. Everything still feels uh, unbearable. Uh, you can see the inhumanity, those actions. Meanwhile, Israel is considering putting age restrictions on Israeli Muslims visiting the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. We know that there are rogue elements, uh, that there are extreme Islamic fundamentalist groups who always seek to flare up uh, the, uh, the surroundings in the holidays, in the celebrations and in the prayers, and that we will not permit. President Isaac Herzog says Israel seeks to balance security with its commitment to freedom of religion. Israel has always and will always maintain freedom of practice and religion in Jerusalem, of course, in all religious sites around the country, definitely in uh, Temple Mount, in the uh, mosques, of course, pending security considerations, challenges. It's rare that Israeli Muslims would be subject to such restrictions. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. So let me take out a couple of things that Julie said that I think are significant. One is that useless building in New York, pardon me, but pardon me, but uh, the onus is on the shoulders of the United Nations to prove why they should still continue to exist. They have long abandoned their original reason for them uh, to join and together as countries across the globe. But now they are an ardent anti-Semitic group with a huge Islamic bloc that on a regular basis votes against Israel on an ongoing basis. So I sent out a tweet so you could see it with your own eyes, a picture of the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. raising her hand and voting in support of this ceasefire resolution. Again, I have the same umbrage with the United Nations as I do with Prince William. Sovereignty, it is a biblical idea. Acts 17 talks about God laying down boundaries. If you touched your neighbor's fence, speaking of boundaries in the Old Testament, it was a capital offense. So God is big on drawing boundaries. He does establish nations. And so for Prince William or the United Nations to tell a country that suffered an attack as bad as 9-11, by comparison, it was equal 
to our 9-11, that they must cease protecting themselves is ludicrous on its face. We don't do that to any other nation. Have we passed a resolution in the United Nations against Russia for its invasion into the Ukraine? Have we passed a resolution against the Burmese army for what they're doing in Miramar? Have we passed a resolution? The list goes on and on and on in nations all across the country. But what is it about that little piece of real estate known as Israel? That is so significant. Again, friend, if you're not going through life with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another, you don't get this at all. You don't get this at all. Nobody celebrates the loss of life, period. War is, as General Sherman said, hell. It's also a strong indicator that we are outside of Eden. This is the basics in nature of man. So go back again to the two demands that Benjamin Netanyahu has made since October 7th. The hostages must be returned alive. And they're not all out. They're not all alive. And so that number one threshold issue has not yet to be met. Number two, that Hamas must be rooted out once and for all. What Benjamin Netanyahu and Israelis generally understand is that Hamas is a front for Iran. This is a proxy war with Iran, by the way. And remember, their impetus for absolutely going after Israel is because they are the little Satan and we are the big Satan. And the Ayatollahs who run that country want to bring about their form of eschatology, Islamic domination of the world and the return of their Messiah, the Mahdi, who will come back and rule from an Islamic throne. Yeah, you're not going to hear that on CNN on a regular basis. So Hamas must be rooted out absolutely to its core and the hostages need to be returned. In the meantime, I'm very thankful that Israel recognizes its sovereignty and does not bow to international press pressure, whether it comes from the UN or a prince. Back after this. God is always at work in your life, but most of the time you can't see it or understand it. That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Discover how to know what God is doing when life doesn't make sense. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you get a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I want to be a scientist just like you. Hello, may I help you? Albert Einstein, your reputation precedes you. We respect the true rebel. Speak! Natura naturans. Everything is connected. It's an idea I've been considering for a while now. Look around you. What do you see? forces that nobody fully understands. Let me study on my own. Rebellion will get you nowhere in life. Monogamy is not natural. It is a construct of religious authority. Be quiet. I wanted to know how. How can something travel to nothing? You think you have all the answers? I want my ideas to be heard, to be acknowledged. Be my partner in life in love. When I was your age, I knew everything, but I was wrong. Please don't do what you always do. Hide in your work. From the smallest molecule to the largest galaxy, I intend to find the answers. You only care about yourself. How could you be so careless with my heart? Milady. 
move in with me, Betty. You have a wife. Why can't I love you and Elsa? For an expert on the universe, you don't know the first thing about people. Stand up for Germany! Peace cannot be kept by force. Albert, I am scared. It may not be safe for you to remain in Berlin. We're not going anywhere, Elsa. And I will not sit by and wait for fascists to kill my husband. Dr. Einstein, you have a history of controversy, which calls into question your loyalties. My loyalties? The past, present, and future is but an illusion. Hmm. So for several nights, Americans were riveted to a series put on television by the National Geographic Channel called Genius, and it was their interpretation of who Albert Einstein was. Well, I think it's safe to say as we start our conversation that he was and remains a scientific rock star. I challenge you to go into any bookstore, into any college campus town in America, and see if you can't find a T-shirt with Albert Einstein's picture on it. And underneath, you'll see just a few letters, E equals mc squared, probably the most quoted scientific equation out there. So was this man an atheist? Did he set out to disprove the existence of God? In fact, more to the point, did he have any opinions about God whatsoever? We are going to spend a fascinating hour with a man who's written a book called A Theory of Everything That Matters, A Brief Guide to Einstein, Relativity, and His Surprising Thoughts on God. What a personal privilege for me to spend yet again some time with Dr. Alistair McGrath, one of the world's leading Christian theologians. He's professor of science and religion at Oxford University. Previously, he was professor of historical theology at Oxford University, and he is currently senior research fellow at Harris Manchester at Oxford. Dr. McGrath, what a joy to have you with us, joining us all the way from the UK. Thank you, sir. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. I was traveling across America and I saw a billboard. Now, on all my trips to the UK, I was loath to find an awful lot of billboards, but they're very common in the United States. Large advertisements on the side of the road. And this one said simply, keep the faith, vote science. And I thought what an interesting encapsulation of a debate we hear here in Washington, D.C. on a regular basis, that science and faith are mutually exclusive, that you can have your faith, but it's not scientifically verifiable, and never should the twain meet. For you personally, why did you choose to dive into the teachings and particularly the theory of relativity for Albert Einstein? Well, I think there are two reasons. One was that um, I studied Einstein in detail when I was an undergraduate at Oxford um, studying chemistry. So I really got to know this man, got very interested in him. Then, of course, when I became a Christian, I began to realize Einstein actually had a lot of very interesting things to say, above all, saying you cannot separate out science and faith. These things go together. And Einstein really is a post boy, not for atheism, but for the idea that science and faith have to be held together because they're both very important. It's not one or the other. They're both important, and you can hold them together. And secondly, and perhaps less importantly, um, in November, that's next month, a hundred years ago, they confirmed Einstein's theory of relativity. So in many ways, this book comes out at a really opportune moment. This is about celebrating Einstein, but also saying, let's look at his views on everything that matters, including the God question and why we need faith to be fulfilled human beings. 
Excellent. Excellent. Now, in fact, you anticipated my question, but I think it's worthy of asking again, because I want Christians who are listening to us all across the United States to say to themselves, this is a conversation worth listening to, as opposed to, it's beyond my pay grade, I can't really understand it, and I see it as having zero relevance to my life. Why should we, as thinking, maturing Christians, examine the ideas of Albert Einstein and whether or not he felt that there was, in fact, an intersection between science and faith. Why, to the 21st century Christian, would that have any relevance? Well, that is a really good question. So let's look at it. Basically, I think there are two groups of people we need to talk to here. One is Christians, who very often feel they have to run away from science because uh, all the guys they think of imply that faith and science are running in opposite directions. The reason I focused on Einstein is he's the best-known scientist there is, and he has this wonderful hairstyle, doesn't he? (laughs) But actually, the key thing is, when you read Einstein, does he say, hey, we've got to be atheists? No, quite the reverse. Einstein is absolutely adamant that if you're a scientist, you're trying to find out his phrase, the mind or the reason behind the universe. And that's really important. And we need to be aware of that, because there are people we're talking to who are not Christians, who love to have answers to their questions, Einstein helps us. Amen. That's part of the being prepared to give a reason for the hope that resides within you. So when we come back, let me start with the question, Dr. McGrath, about whether or not Einstein himself personally was an atheist, which is often touted, but is it factually correct? The book is called A Theory of Everything That Matters, A Brief Guide to Einstein, Relativity, and His Surprising Thoughts on God. More after this. this to be an absolutely fascinating read, and I would not top myself as a scientist of any kind, but I love to examine great ideas. And I love to see, by the way, how questions get raised in one discipline that often can be answered in another relationship between science and faith. So Dr. Alistair McGrath has a brand new book out. By the way, I would recommend anything anything that Dr. McGrath has written, but this latest book is just a thriller. It's called A Theory of Everything That Matters, A Brief Guide to Einstein Relativity and His Surprising Thoughts on God. If one reads The God Delusion, 2006, Richard Dawkins, one would believe that then Einstein is an atheist, because after all, Richard Dawkins says so. Is in fact is in fact that the truth? No. Um, Dawkins has not read Einstein properly at all. I have. There's a massive literature about Dawkins, about Einstein out there. Dawkins hasn't read it. I have. And Einstein is absolutely clear. He was was really fed up with people who said he was an atheist. And he was very, very clear. I do not share their views. And he, he doesn't like atheists. He says, in particular, he dislikes those who are fanatical atheists with what he says is a grudge against traditional religion. So this is a matter of fact, okay? fact. Einstein was very clear he was not an atheist. That's very, very clear. He believed in a God who was a mind behind the universe and that science pointed towards us. And also, not simply that God was there, but that God mattered. That in effect, you had to hold together your science and your faith. It could be done. He did it. And Einstein is giving us a way of doing this too. So I think he's really interesting. But listen, read Einstein. Don't read Dawkins. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And you quote him throughout the book, by the way, and you cite letters and you cite speeches that he gave to make your case with eloquence. He, he if I've done my homework correctly, he often referred to himself as a deeply religious non-believer. So even though he did not believe, in fact, he used the word anthropomorphic quite a bit in writing about his particular perspective. So he didn't believe in a personal God. And it also sounds like he took umbrage in particular with the Christian Bible, which included what he called stories. Talk to me about that. Yes, um, he didn't uh, like the idea of a personal God. And some people, of course, said, well, personal God means God. So if you don't believe in personal God, don't believe in God. But no, he didn't say that. Basically, he didn't like Christianity because Christianity talked about a personal God who cared for people, who in effect was involved in the world of the universe. And Einstein wanted God to be impersonal and distant. But nevertheless, he was convinced there was something there, something that in effect was a bit of a mystery, but science pointed to it, and it was really important. And you know, as Christians, we can say, well, look, Einstein is pointing in the right direction. It doesn't go all the way. There's a lot more that needs to be said, but hey, he gets a really good conversation underway, especially when we're talking to our friends who are scientists, because we can say Einstein is saying there's more to the universe than meets the eye. There's something really deep and rich and exciting there, and we need to explore that. And we as Christians come and say, hey, we do that. Let's follow these clues and see where they lead us. Exactly. And particularly when one of the greatest scientists of all times, who was always looking for the bigger picture, as you hearken to several times in the book, said this, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Is that a statement that's problematic for a Christian? It is a true statement, and it doesn't have to be problematic, because what uh, Einstein is saying very, very clearly is that religion on its own is one thing, Science on its own is another thing. But if the two of them begin to interact with each other, you get a richer and deeper vision of reality. And in many ways, I think that, that that's right. I think it's very important that you can have a rich faith in God as I do. And yet science helps me to expand that vision of God. You know, like Psalm 19 asks me to look at the night sky and appreciate the glory of God. So in effect, it deepens my appreciation of how wonderful God is. And Einstein is helping us to do that. He's enriching our vision of what God is like. And as Christians, we can, in effect, bring into the picture all that we know about God, the God who loves us, the God who, in effect, made himself known in Jesus Christ, the God who redeems us. And we can add that on to Einstein and say, this is the bigger picture Einstein's missing, but he's pointing in the right direction. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. The fact that he was pointing has my attention. And by the way, as I examine this, if I'm going to be critical in my thinking, and I need to be, if in fact there is evidence of an overlapping between science and religion, is that a problem for either believers or scientists? I don't think it is. I think that many scientists would say to me, well, look, science is great, but we're aware that it has its limits. There's an awful lot of stuff beyond science. If you like the big picture of reality, science is filling in part of it, but only part of it. And likewise, um, people who believe in God, like myself, again, that's wonderful. It's just so exciting. But again, it's, it's part of a picture. What I'm just saying is maybe we can hold these two things together as interconnected and enriching. And that helps to talk to people outside the Christian faith about why this world, in effect, is much more beautifully captured by religious faith than it is simply by science on its own. Yeah. Oh, well said. So as we continue to look at Einstein's examinations, as he matured as a scientist, as he began to discover more and more, 
Does his writing, do his speeches give any any evidence whatsoever to the fact that while he did not believe in a personal God, he knew that there was something there? In fact, it's interesting because if we see movies and Hollywood presentations about this, uh, the, the thesis gets touted that what Einstein was actually trying to do was to disprove the existence of God. Does anything in your research on Einstein point to that as being legitimate? I know that I think is a Hollywood myth. It's a way of trying to sell movies. The real Einstein basically took the view that science was wonderful, but that science couldn't fully grasp the mystery of this world. There was more to science. There was more to the universe. We had to go beyond science to find the true meaning of the universe and life. Mm. The book is called A Theory of Everything That Matters, A Brief Guide to Einstein, Relativity, and His Surprising Thoughts on God. It is the newest book by Dr. Alistair McGrath. You can learn more at our website at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. But we still have a ways to go, and I'm so glad there's much to examine in this new book. Stay with us more after the break. Are you the sort of person who likes to have the inside scoop, who wants to be informed? When you become a partial partner, you're not only keeping this program on the air every weekday, you'll also receive exclusive benefits like personal emails from me. I'll help you learn how to look at the headlines with a biblical perspective. Become a partial partner today by calling 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I've completely solved the problem. Uh, what are you talking about? Close your eyes. Pretend you're overlooking a train track. Imagine a train racing past, faster than any train you've ever seen. Now I want you to imagine, as the train is flying past, two lightning bolts crashing beyond the tracks at the same time, a hundred meters apart. So what? Patience. Now imagine that you're standing in the middle of the train during the exact same scenario. Would the lightning bolts be simultaneous? Of course. Not if light moves at one speed. Close your eyes. Oh, but this is ridiculous. Put yourself back on the moving train and really think about it. Do it, Michele. Now watch the lightning bolts. Were they simultaneous to you? No! Because you were moving towards one and away from the other. <laughs> to me, standing still, they were simultaneous. How could the two of us experience the same event differently? Well, we couldn't. Unless... It's not Maxwell who gets it between the eyes. It's Newton. <laughs> what are you saying? Time is not absolute. <laughs> I'm writing the paper, Michele. I dare them to ignore it. <laughs> that again from the National Geographic special entitled Genius, which examined the life of Albert Einstein and this whole idea of saying that's the end of Newton. Well, Dr. Alistair McGrath talks about that in his new book, A Theory of Everything That Matters, a brief guide to Einstein relativity and his surprising thoughts on God. So I want to continue with this because... Um, as he examined it, he, he he dug into God's world. He didn't know necessarily that that was it. He didn't even 
put it that way in his own verbiage. But that's what he was doing, the mystery, the awe, the wonder of a world made out of order, not chaos, because God is not the author of confusion, as Scripture said. But he did write a letter in 1954. It's often referred to as the God letter. And he talks about the Bible as a collection of venerable but still rather primitive legends. And also in this letter, excuse me, which was written just a few months, 15 months to be exact, before his death, he said, The word God is for me nothing but the expression and product of human weakness. The Bible, a collection of vulnerable but still rather primitive legends. No interpretation, no matter how subtle can for me change anything about this. For me, the Jewish religion, like all other religions, is an incarnation of most childish superstition. I cannot see anything chosen about them referring to the Jewish people. So this underscores, again that he didn't believe in a personal God. But yet, there was still a sense of awe as he was discovering in the world of science. So tell me how that awe manifests itself. For Einstein, um, you experience a sense of awe in the vastness of the universe, and also a, a sense of mystery in that you cannot fully represent the complexity, the wonder of the universe in any system. You can, you can do your best, but in the end, you're going to fail. And so Einstein was very critical of anyone, whether a scientist or indeed a religious person, who said, we've got this, we've got this you know, done, sorted out completely. He was saying, you can't do that. In fact, there's always going to be this area of uncertainty. But he was very, very clear that there was something behind the universe. He was very critical of um, both Judaism and Christianity for some of the ideas which he believed to be unnecessary or simply wrong. But he was clear they were right in saying there is something beyond the universe which we do not fully grasp, and it motivates the whole scientific enterprise. And so mm. for Christians, I think we, we would disagree with Einstein on his assessment of Christianity, but we would say Einstein gives us a wonderful way of starting a conversation about the importance of belief and the need to hold together both science and faith, even if we think Einstein gets it wrong at points. Now, look, Einstein's a genius, but being a genius doesn't mean you're right about everything. So That's we right. are entitled to say to Einstein, look, you may not have quite got Christianity right. Beautifully stated. In fact, to your point before about something out there, you refer to it because you quote Einstein as saying it was actually what he called cosmic religious feeling. And you say this was more into the world of the philosophy of religion. How so? Because uh, um, Einstein is very, very clear there is something there. And he doesn't like talking about a personal God. He doesn't like talking about a positive religion like Judaism or Christianity. And in many ways, if you think Einstein sets out a philosophy of religion, that there is something which gives our world its order, that is something that we can never fully represent, but is real and is a mind, introduces order, then that actually means that as a Christian theologian, I can come along and say, hey, that's right. It, as far as you go, there's a lot more that needs to be said, but you get the conversation underway, and you make yes. the critically important point that there is more that needs to be said. And as a scientist, you're telling me that we can, in effect, go further and say something about this God and see that as being consistent with the scientific method. So again, it's so important when we're talking to scientists to say there is more that we can say, and holding together science and faith enriches our vision of this world and helps us to live within this world in a more meaningful and helpful way. 
So contrary to the billboard I saw, it's not an either-or proposition, either faith or science, because the two are not mutually exclusive. You write that there are three views, three perspectives, if you will, on this dialogue about the relationship between science and religion. One is a war, one is a silo, one is a dialogue. Please explain. The war is, is the sort of thing that Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett would say. There's science, and it is fighting against religion. Well, maybe it fights against some kinds of religion, but actually the historical evidence is that this is very recent. I would say, as a historian, that I see this idea really beginning in the 1870s. Now, that's quite recent. Silo is, in effect, saying, well, look, they're both there, but they are in their own watertight compartments. They never interact. And actually, Einstein's a bit like that at points. Then the people like myself or Francis Collins or John Lennox who would say, no, no, there's a conversation that can be had. Science is science. Christianity is Christianity. We're not messing around them in any way, but we're saying there's a conversation that can happen, and it brings depth, it brings a, a richer vision of reality to both our faith and our science. So it mm. seems to me Einstein is actually giving us some very helpful pointers about both how we can enrich our own understanding of the world, but also have very important cultural conversations about how faith and science can talk to each other and actually have something important to say to each other. Mm. Excellent, excellent response. So let me ask a question. Is this supposed war, just factoring out one of these three perspectives, the supposed war between science and faith, science and religion, is it a new phenomenon, a 20th century, or has there been a more complementary relationship between science and religion in centuries past? If we go back to the time of the European Renaissance, we find a very, um, a very rich understanding of the relationship of science and faith, which in effect is very often summarized in the idea of two books. Two books God wrote, the book of Scripture, the book of nature. One is the book of God's words, one is the book of God's works. And those two are different, those books, but... They both bear witness to the same God, and by reading both of them, we see the world in a richer way. This conflict, this so-called warfare between science and religion, is a recent invention, and really history is saying we need to move away from this. This is simply something that happened recently. It doesn't have to be this way. It hasn't been this way. There are richer visions available. But people like Richard Dawkins, in effect, depend upon this idea of warfare to sustain their views. So they're not really very interested in the scholarship that says this is out of date, this was never really the case at all. But I want to say to you listening to this program, there are richer and better ways of understanding it. And Einstein gives us some very helpful pointers to what those are. Mm. So to help us better understand the challenge in the marketplace of ideas, let me hearken back to another gentleman from Oxford. Lewis wrote about the rise of scientism. He did this in the 1950s and 60s. What do you think he saw then that made him a bit prophetic to what we're seeing today? What Lewis saw in the 40s and 50s, and uh, indeed even into the 60s, was this idea that science was almost like a a whole system of salvation, that science was what was changing the human fortunes into something much better, that science enabled us to be authentic human beings. And Lewis was saying, sadly, this is just not right. Science, in effect, creates 
nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction. Science is a good tool, but it can be used in a bad way. And Lewis is saying that we need a bigger and better vision of our world and ourselves if we're going to deal with science properly. And for Lewis, we need to recognize that because we're sinful, we can use science in bad ways. And that's one of the problems I have with writers like Richard Dawkins. They seem very reluctant to realize that science actually can be abused. It can lead us down some very bad ways. We need to be honest about the difficulties that science very often faces when an invention can be used to heal people, but also to kill people. And that really brings out the moral complexity of human nature. And of course, for Lewis, that is where Christianity has so much to say that needs to be heard. Mm, wow. The brand new book by Dr. Alistair McGrath is called A Theory of Everything That Matters, A Brief Guide to Einstein, Relativity, and His Surprising Thoughts on God. Let me take a break. Come back. I have a few more minutes with Dr. McGrath. If this is at all resonating with you, and I certainly hope it does, in Washington, we hear these conversations all the time. But there are people who very much believe that scientism is the way to go. And I'm hungry when I get in the marketplace of ideas to engage individuals like this. This is why I find this book so fascinating. Does God provide the answers? Can you start with a dialogue and go deeper on the overlapping between science and religion? I think the answer to that is an overwhelming yes. More with Dr. McGrath right after this. We're visiting with Dr. Alistair McGrath, who is one of the world's leading Christian theologians, currently senior research fellow at Harris Manchester in Oxford. And in his brand new book, A Theory of Everything That Matters, A Brief Guide to Einstein, Relativity, and His Surprising Thoughts on God, he says he has no intention of forcing Einstein into a Christian or any other mold. Einstein clearly wasn't a Christian. He clearly wasn't an atheist either. He was just Einstein. And he goes on to point out the fact that Einstein was very reluctant to talk about the religious implication of his theories, including his theory of relativity. He simply wanted to clarify the best way of conceiving the order of our universe built, but did not see this as impacting the world of religion. So this raises, Dr. McGrath, a bunch of interesting questions. And I love the way you conclude the book by particularly chastising gently, but nonetheless, there's a chastisement there to step up and to step into this dialogue that we have to be very careful when we look at the big picture, which was something that Einstein did. You even talk about the German worldview, the German word that means his worldview, the big picture of things, that in fact, if we just respond by saying he's the God in the gaps, that in this day and age, that isn't sufficient. Talk to me about that. Yes, that's right. I mean, basically what Einstein is, is saying that that the universe our observations of the universe, whether we're scientists or religious believers, is pointing beyond this to something still better. And this is something that, in effect, science is unable to deliver, but it is there. So, in effect, Einstein is inviting us to go further than this, but not in the sense of, hey, science can't explain this, so there must be a god. It's much more something like this. There is this big picture that seems to make so much sense of why science works and what its limits are. There's some way of understanding our universe that 
doesn't make so much sense. And in the end, you believe in God, not because of gaps, but because belief in God gives you this big picture of reality, which makes so much sense. It brings things into focus. It enables you to see things more clearly. And C.S. Lewis and Einstein are basically on the same page here. Both of them are saying there is this big picture. And when you see it, everything comes into focus. And I think that if we put Einstein and C.S. Lewis together, we get this wonderful combination, not simply of a realization of the beauty and wonder and mysteriousness of the universe and the fact that there's a mind behind it, that's Einstein, but with Lewis, we realize that this God, yes, this God, in effect, makes the universe intelligible, that we can live meaningfully in this universe. That's a very powerful combination, and that's why I'm trying to suggest in this book is the way in which Einstein leads us. Exactly. And again, I think you're challenging the believer to have this big picture kind of thinking. In fact, if I may quote you, you talk about the forms of the movement known as pietism that holds that Christian that the Christian's responsibility is to focus on a personal devotional life rather than to become preoccupied with intellectual issues. Others would suggest that Christianity is primarily a religion of salvation and that a concern with offering an explanation of our world does not feature predominantly, if it features at all, in the New Testament. Others, however, will suggest that while Christianity does indeed encourage a discipleship of the heart, there is also an obligation to develop a discipleship of the mind. This is brilliant, and I would like to linger here because I think this is so tremendously important. Culturally, I think we have seen the pendulum swing the other way where there is almost an anti-intellectualism in the church that somehow if you examine the big picture, if you dig into big ideas, Einstein will never be a believer, but he was certainly curious and he was certainly pointing the way. And that's a marvelous place to start with someone who believes that somehow Christianity or rather religion and science are mutually exclusive. So talk to me about why it is imperative for Christians, should the Lord tarry, that we really do have this big picture kind of thinking. Well, Jesus tells us to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. I just want to encourage listeners to to realize, actually, that Christianity makes sense of things. It is wonderful. It deepens our faith in God. It, in effect, gives us a vision of the world, but it also helps us to make sense of things. And more than that, it makes sense of things better than, for example, atheism or other religious alternatives. And we need our culture to hear that. So in many ways, one of the things I'm saying in this book is, look, let's engage our culture powerfully, faithfully, authentically, realizing that Christianity is able to say some very powerful things and help us make sense of this world. And so Einstein is actually a very helpful dialogue partner. And I want to suggest that, in effect, we gain confidence in the Christian faith, not simply as a way of achieving salvation, that's so important, but also as a way of making sense of this world and our place within it, and a way that we can share with non-Christians and say, look, here's what I think. You tell me what you think, and we can see which one seems to do better justice to the way things actually are. Mm. Dr. McGrath, when you are at one of the most prestigious universities in the world, and you are a professor of science and religion, and a young student comes to Oxford, do you find them generally in conflict because they come with the presupposition that, in fact, science and religion do not have any kind of an overlapping, or are they already starting from a position that somehow the two can run in parallel tracks? 
what I'm seeing is people coming to us with the, the remnants of a secular worldview. We, we've been told that science and religion are in conflict, but actually we're not sure. We think it might be more complicated, more interesting than that. Tell us more. So in effect, mm. it's very much a, a sort of skepticism about Richard Dawkins and company, and in effect saying, look, this doesn't make sense. Tell me what the situation really is. Give me a better picture to make sense of things. So there is a real intellectual curiosity there. And, you know, as Christians, we can rise to that. There are lots of things we can say. There are lots of texts we can appeal to. And there are lots of writers. I've mentioned C.S. Lewis, but there are others who can really help us rise to this challenge today. Oh, what a note to end this conversation on. Dr. McGrath, I thank you so very much, not only for taking us on this journey so that we could examine more some of the theories of Albert Einstein. We can negate the mythology that he is, in fact, an atheist, which he was not. That, in fact, he is a great place to start a dialogue. Those three different worldviews, I'm with you. I like the approach of having a dialogue in the marketplace of ideas with those who think that science is the end-all and be-all, that it can answer all of our questions, that it doesn't point to something beyond ourselves when in fact we can use Einstein as an example to say, in fact, it does. The book is so user-friendly, you don't have to have a PhD from Oxford to read it and understand it. It's written so that you and I will be emboldened to enter that marketplace. The book, again, is called A Theory of Everything That Matters, A Brief Guide to Einstein's Relativity, His Surprising, and His Surprising Thoughts on God. I recommend it to you. Check it out at my website, inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Click on that red box that says Program Details and Audio. That'll take you over to my information page. There's an expanded biography of Dr. McGrath there. There is also, by the way, a link to one of his websites that is absolutely brilliant. And on the right-hand side of the page, the book that we have been discussing. We are to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that resides within us. If the remnants of a secular culture are all around, if we are seeing minds that are being tainted with this idea, the mythology that science and faith do not overlap, I challenge you to read this book so you'll be encouraged to engage. Thanks for joining us, friends. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parshall.